0: Hi everybody, it's a joy to gather together and continue in our series in Revelation. Uh, you might have noticed our uh, more college students aren't here, they're away on mission this Sunday and the next, uh, but it's wonderful to see new faces uh, here tonight. Welcome, it's great to have you with us. My name's Troy, I'm uh, one of the pastors here at St. George North and 630 Church in particular. Uh, but again, please have your Bible out and then we will uh, get stuck into God's Word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we taste your word, that it would be sweeter than honey. And that it would give us understanding so that we might live. So that we might be wise for salvation and know how to do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To start, I want to ask you a question. The question is, what do the following things have in common? Hospitals. Doctors, deathbeds, funerals, cemeteries, grief counsellors, health insurance, life insurance, wills, Panadol, antidepressants, tissues, police, judges, law courts, temples, cathedrals, and church buildings. What do all these things have in common? You might be thinking, they all cost money and you'd be right about that, Uh, but the real question I want to show us is, what what do these things have in common? None of them will be in God's new creation. You see, when Jesus returns, when God makes all things new, none of those things that I just mentioned will be needed anymore. Well done, you have reached it uh, to almost the end of Revelation, we're in the second last week of our series in Revelation, Uh, and in these chapters, the ones we read tonight, we get a picture of God's new creation, of what life will be like there. So we're going to look at it together, please have Revelation 21 open, Uh, but first let's uh, remember a few things before we get stuck into the passage. Uh, Let's play Revelation recap, as I like to call it. Uh, The first thing to remember as we come to Revelation again... Remember last week we had our vision uh, sermon from Phil talking about fellowship. We took a break from Revelation. Now we're back. What we need to remember when we come back to it is... As we've seen over these last 10 or so weeks... Revelation focuses now very much on the end. On the final judgment. On the eternal realities. That's what's in view. And what we actually get in these chapters, Revelation 21 and 22 we get a picture of even beyond the end. The last few chapters, they showed us the end. God's wrath completed his final judgment, the dead, great and small, being raised and judged according to the books that God will open. But now, all of that is done. Now we get a picture, a wonderful picture, a picture of eternity, of eternal life, of new creation. It's not just the end, it's It's everything beyond the end. It's the beginning of eternity. So far in Revelation, we've seen just short glimpses of what this will be like, the new creation. It will be like a great multitude of people from all nations gathering together to to sing the praises of God and of the Lamb. God's people will be sealed, and they will be safe and secure in his presence, vindicated and at peace now we get an even bigger picture than those earlier passages, a clearer picture of what eternal life will be like. So come with me, let's explore these chapters. These are some of the most wonderful words ever written. I hope you see that. They are here for our comfort and for our encouragement and for our joy. So let's get into it uh, together. First of all, we see a new creation and a new Jerusalem. Look at uh, chapter 21, verse 1, with me. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. What what does John see now? With all the crazy things he's seen, what does he see now? He sees a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, Heaven and earth is a way of talking about everything that God has made. If you cast your mind back to Genesis chapter 1, what does it say? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, his creation. And so here, John sees a new creation. The first creation, the first world is gone. Now, we see a new one. Last week, chapter 20, sorry, a few weeks ago, chapter 20, verse 11, we saw God appeared on his judgment throne, and it says, heaven and earth are fled from his presence that is they were no more it's saying that on the day of judgment god will do away with this creation the first heaven and earth will pass away the world as we know it will cease it will be burned up and god will bring about a new one he will start again with a new creation creation 2.0 That's one of the big misconceptions that people often have about eternal life. Uh, People think that it's non-physical, that it's spiritual, that it's airy-fairy up in the heavens. And in one sense, that's right. Because as we've seen in the book of Revelation and in the whole rest of the Bible, when a believer dies, they go to be with the Lord. Their body here on earth decays, but their spirit, they experience life in heaven with Jesus. And that is wonderful, but it is not our final resting place. God has far more in store. When Jesus comes back in glory to judge, he will raise all those who have trusted in him. He will give them glorious, eternal bodies like his, never to decay, never to die again. And we see this so wonderfully in places like 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And with these new physical bodies that Jesus gives us, we live in a new physical creation. And so that's what we have a picture of here, a very real, very physical creation. It's just a new one that is very different to ours in many ways. Most of all, it will not be stained and corrupted by sin You know, we can't imagine how great that will be. Our whole experience, every second of our existence, has been in this creation subject to futility, subject to the curse of sin, subject to death and decay. A world without these things, it must be so different, right? so different to what we know and experience we can only scratch the surface of imagining how great that will be and i think that's what it means when it says there's no sea in the new creation there now sometimes i read that and i'm like oh that's that's kind of a letdown like i really like the beach i really would love to go surfing in the new creation and not have the risk of injury or drowning that would be fantastic but i think it's actually not literal it's it's an image i really do hope There is the sea in the new creation. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, But it's an image, an image of what the sea represents. You see, there won't be danger in the new creation. There won't be fear and chaos. There won't be sin and death, all those things that the sea and its chaos represent. None of those things that I mentioned at the start will be there or be needed anymore. You know, I remember when I first worked this out as a young adult. My first year out of high school, we've got some people here who are first year out of high school. uh, And growing up, when I was at a different church, uh, basically my church taught that when you die or when Jesus returns, you go to be with Jesus in heaven and it's a spiritual, out-of-body experience. It's not physical. They didn't teach the clear vision of a new creation, of new bodies like these chapters here, that Jesus would raise us But when I joined a new church, a Bible-teaching church, I was taught the wonder of the new creation. I was taught that God cares about our creation and our physical existence and that he will redeem our whole life, soul and body, from the curse of sin. You see, he wants us to enjoy life as God first intended it to be, free from sin and sickness and death. So we will glorify God in soul and body into all eternity. So that's what we have here, a new creation. And this new creation is the stage for the rest of what we see in these chapters, this passage. So we see a picture going on from there of a city and a bride. So have a look at verse 2 with me. John says, I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. What does John see? Picture it with me. Out of the new heaven, a city descends down onto the new earth. A city that is glorious and beautiful. It's like a bride who is wonderfully dressed and presented for her wedding day. And at this point, I think our antenna should be going off a little bit because why? Well, in Revelation so far, we've already seen an image of a woman, an image of a woman who represents a city. Do you remember Babylon the Great just a few chapters ago? The the notorious prostitute, the woman of of exceeding luxury, of sexual immorality. She represented the the big cities, the the combined uh, evil humanity of our world. But here, we have the opposite of that, don't we? Here we have the opposite of a brazen prostitute, we have a beautifully adorned bride, ready to devote herself in faithfulness to her husband. Here we have the opposite of Babylon the Great, that the city of Babylon or the, the city of Rome, cities of sin, here we have the city of Jerusalem pictured. Jerusalem, the capital city of God's precious people, Israel. The city where God's king reigned. The city where God's temple was built and God dwelt with his people. And So that's what this city, this bride, is a picture of. It's a picture of God's saved people dwelling with their God. This is showing us instead of us going to heaven as spirits, there will be a new creation and heaven comes to earth. Just as God dwelt with his people in Jerusalem, God will dwell with his people for eternity in the new Jerusalem. All those from Israel, all those from the Old Testament who truly believed in their God before Jesus came, and then all those from all nations who after then have heard the gospel and believed in Christ, together they will dwell with God in his new creation. They will be the bride of Christ, devoted and faithful to him forever. Now look at verse 3. We see it there. It's so beautiful. It says, a loud voice says, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Shouldn't those words fill us with wonder and awe? This language, it comes up time and time again in the Old Testament. I will be your God, you will be my people. It's God's promise that he would dwell with his people Israel. But their sin continued to separate them from him. But, as it says here, in the end, God will fulfill all his promises to, <clears throat> excuse me, to Israel. In the end, God will bring all people, his people, to stand before him. In the end, sinners who are saved by grace can stand before the holy God of the universe. They can stand before him and not face his terrible wrath and anger. No, they will face his blessing and his love. God will dwell with his people, his people forgiven and washed clean by the blood of Jesus. He'll be present with them always. They will stand in his presence, the holy God of the universe, As his loved people. No sin stands in their way. God will love and rule his people, and they, his people, will love him and joyfully obey him. And then uh, some of the rest of the verses, and a lot of the rest of the passage, it goes on to talk about what it will be like there. So look at verse 4 with me. Look at these well known words. This is what it will be like for God's people, this is what he will do for them. Verse 4. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. The effects of sin, the curse of sin, the inescapable reality of suffering and death that we face every day here, it will be no more. And there will only be life, life as it is truly meant to be, life and joy and celebration in God, in who he is and what he has done for us. That's what it will be like. How wonderful will it be when we get there? We can only begin to scratch the surface, begin to imagine life in a new creation. That's the wonderful thing about this passage, is we get this glimpse, this this picture, more than perhaps anywhere else in Scripture, of the joy that we will have in God's new creation. Uh, But now what I want to do is, is hit pause on this first part of the passage, and then come back to it later. What I want to do is just briefly now look at the second and third parts of the passage, because the second and third parts of the passage, they give us more detail. They show us more what it will be like in the new creation. So we'll come back to these last few verses of this first part, but come with me. Let's see what it'll be like in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem. The second and third parts of the passage, they actually give this description of the outside of the city, and then the inside of the city. And it goes into all this detail. We won't have time to look at it at all. Perhaps you can look with your gospel team this week and explore it more. <clears throat> but just look over verses 9 to 21 with me. The outside of the city. What do we see? The vision goes into all this fine detail of the measurements of the city and the materials of the walls. I wonder if you thought that was a bit weird as you read it before. Like, why wow, this really, really long description? Look at it. What do we see? We see there's gold and costly stones everywhere to show how glorious and rich God's new city will be. And the city is enormous. It is a giant cube, 2,200 kilometers long, high, and wide. Now here's how big it would be. I have a picture here. Here's how big it would be compared to the Earth. It's almost the size of the moon. Maybe this is a fun craft that you can do if you're a kids' church leader uh, in the next few weeks uh, or when you study the book of Revelation with them. But it's it's massive. It's absolutely immense. Then uh, if we look throughout those verses again, we see there's 12s everywhere. Did you notice that repetition? 12 gates, 12 foundations, 12 names of the tribes of Israel, and 12 apostles. What's the point of all that? Splendor and immensity is the point. God's new city where his people will dwell with him will be incredible, glorious, beautiful, and rich. It makes me think of the story Jesus tells, the parable of the mustard seed. What does he say? He says the kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed but then grows up to be an enormous tree. It might look small now, Jesus says, but then it will be huge and full and complete. That's the point here. No matter how small and insignificant, how poor and weak God's kingdom, God's people look, in the end... His kingdom, his new creation, his new Jerusalem will be massive. It will be immense, it will be glorious, it will be rich, true riches, more than any found on earth will be found there. And most of all, all God's people will be there. That's what all the 12s are for. All of God's chosen and faithful people will be gathered and will be with him forever that's what it will be like so that's a picture of the outside of the city now in the third part we get a picture of the inside of the city and again we won't look at it all but just look over those verses again briefly verse 22 to verse 5 in the next chapter what do we see there what is it like well there's no sanctuary no no temple because they don't need one because god and the lamb dwell with their people There's no sun or stars because God's glory lights the city. We see wealth and splendor again. We see people from all nations who are blessed. The promises to Abraham are fulfilled. We see a river of life and a tree of life to remind us of the Garden of Eden when relationship with God was perfect, unstained by sin. And as a symbol of God giving eternal life and sustaining them into eternity. We see there, nothing evil will be there. What's the point of all this imagery? God's blessing will be there. Like in the Garden of Eden, God will walk with his people again. He will dwell with his people. He will bless them and sustain them for eternal life. All his promises... All his words will be fulfilled, fully and finally. It will be creation. It will be life as God truly intended it to be. And in verse 4, it says these insane words. They will see him. We will see God face to face. There will be no distance. There will be no barrier. There will be no stain of sin the God we love and worship, though we can't see him now, we will love and worship and see him as someone sees another person face to face. That's what it will be like there. It's a wonderful and beautiful image of blessing, of life in God's new creation. But now, as I said before, I want to come back to the first part of the passage and finish it off. Come back to those first verse, verses again. Because as we bring it all together, uh, come back with me, chapter 21, verse 5 and 6, what do we see? There we get a picture of, of God's official decree on this matter. We get his stamp of approval that this will happen. Look at verse 5. It says, The one seated on the throne said, God himself, look, I am making everything new. Nothing will be like it used to be it will be glorious and wonderful with with no sin no death and then it goes on he also said write John write down these things because my words are faithful and true and he said to me it is done I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end this is like a solemn vow of god that he will do this or it's his cry of victory when it is done God is saying to us here, it is as good as done. He has the power to do this. He is eternal and sovereign over all. That's what Alpha and Omega means, the first and last letters of the alphabet, the beginning and the end. He has all power and authority. So he can do this. He can fulfill this vision of eternal life. And he is faithful to do it. His words are faithful and true. He will keep his word. He will keep his promise. And so we can draw such courage, such encouragement from these words that if we trust in Jesus, this is our future. God will do it. Then, as we've seen time and time again in Revelation, then comes the encouragement and the challenge. In verse 7 and 8. God Himself continues speaking and He gives us encouragement and a warning. What's the encouragement? Look at verse 7. He says, The victor will inherit these things. I will be His God and He will be my Son. I hope now you are familiar with that word, the victor. Who is the victor in Revelation? The victor is the one who keeps trusting in Jesus to the end. It's the one who keeps living for Jesus in the face of persecution. It's the one who holds on to the gospel and doesn't bow down to any so-called God or any man. That's God's encouragement. Be the victor. Make it to the end and I will be your God and you will be my son, my adopted child through Jesus. You will have a place in my new creation. That's the encouragement. But what's the challenge? Verse 8 says, But the cowards, the unbelievers, vile murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Only those who trust in Jesus, who turn from their life of sin and turn to him, can join him in his new creation. So all those who oppose God and continue living in their sin, as we have seen for many weeks in Revelation, they will face God's righteous anger. Their share, their portion, their allotment, what they deserve is the lake of fire, the second death, as it's called, a picture of hell, a picture of eternal punishment for sin. And so there's a challenge here for anyone who's listening to this right now, but who does not know Jesus. There is only one way to be saved from your sin. There is only one way to flee from God's coming wrath. There is only one way to enter the eternal life that we see pictured here in God's new creation. And it's this it's turning away from your sin turning away and then turning to Jesus as your Saviour and as your Lord. It's calling on Him for forgiveness and for salvation. And so if you still need to do that, then the book of Revelation pleads with you, and so do we. Come to Jesus and find eternal life. Turn to Him and you will have a place in His new creation. And if you need help with that, that's what we are here for. Ask for help today, and we will talk and pray about that. But there's also a challenge here for anyone who says that they are a Christian. Because the victor here is the opposite of the coward mentioned afterwards. See, the coward at the beginning of that list, the coward is the one who gives in to fear. The coward is the one who stops believing when pressure comes. The coward is the one who doesn't persevere in their faith. Don't be the coward who gives up, God says. Be the victor. Keep trusting in Jesus to the end. And it will be well worth it. It will be well worth it because this vision of life in God's new creation, his new Jerusalem, It will be wonderful beyond imagination. And so it should stir our souls, shouldn't it? It should stir our souls because these are some of the most magnificent things ever written. They are our great hope. They are what we look forward to if we trust in Jesus. They are what we long for as we groan in these bodies of decay. As we see the sin in the world around us and in our own lives as we see the evil of humanity, as we see a world falling apart. So it should stir our souls. It should stir our souls, first of all, to praise God and say, God, how great you are. If this is what you have in store for your people, for me, then you are glorious. You deserve all praise. It should stir our souls to praise our God again for his grace to us. And... It should stir our souls to long to be there, to long for the day when this vision becomes reality before our eyes. It should stir us to let go of the things of this world which we want to hold on to because they will pass away and true riches will be found in a new creation. It should stir us not to worry about this life but to seek first the kingdom which is not of this world. It should stir us to persevere, to persevere through the pain and and suffering, through the frustration and futility of life. As we long for a day when there is no more death or grief or crying or pain. Most of all, it should stir us to long to be there with our God and with our Lord Jesus to see our God face to face, to stand in his presence, the one who made all things and who sustains all things and who rules all things, to see the lamb who was slain for us, to see the scars in his hands which paid for my sin, to spend eternity, joy forever and ever unending with our God. That's what these words should make us long for. Let's pray for that now. Our gracious Father, we praise and thank you again for these wonderful words. Father, we pray that you would impress them on our hearts and minds, that we would look with great joy forward to the new creation, that you would fill us with a longing and with a hope to go there and be with you. But Father, in the meantime, please help us to be strengthened in our faith, to build one another up and to have your spirit at work in us to persevere until the end so that we stand before you one day forgiven, cleansed by the blood of Jesus and ready to spend eternity with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.